You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. A new design for fiction. A gut reinvention of the novel or an original contribution to our contemporary relationship history. These are just a few of the praises that have been given to the first volumes of Rachel Cusk's new fiction trilogy, where we follow a recently divorced writer named Faye and her encounters with friends and strangers as she goes about her daily life. The first novel, Outline, or Umris, as is it called in Agneta Ayes' beautiful translation, has just been published in Norway. And the sequel, Transit, will be out later this year, when also the third volume, Kudos, will be launched in English. My name is Lindrottem, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And tonight I am extremely pleased to welcome Rachel Cusk to our stage for the very first time. It can be difficult to summarize Cusk writing in few words, even though Outline and Transit is composed mainly of conversations. The stories are filled with so many layers and perspectives. My own editions of the books are at least filled with underlines and bookmarks. I dare say that Cusk's works gives us, her readers, a better understanding of the big and small things that make up the world around us, and the often surprising connections between them. It is about observing as much as it is about telling, and every moment is a little story in itself. For me, reading these books is a kind of meditation of modern life, mirroring the unstable nature of memory and identity in both our own lives, our relationships, and in fiction itself. Another writer known for her sharp observations and attention to both details and human relations is Lind Ullmann, who we are so fortunate to have with us tonight as interviewer. So please give them both a warm welcome. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Oslo. It's and welcome to the to Literature House. Thank you. Um, you know, I want to go right at it. I just, I've been uh, waiting to talk to you for a long time, and I've been reading these books many times over. And also, kudos, not yet published. Um, and I listened to an interview with you on the radio, or it was a podcast, uh, yesterday, I think it was, while I was out walking. And it was an interview where you talked about prior knowledge. And you said you wanted, with these books, with this trilogy, to write a text in which there is no prior knowledge because prior knowledge is fake. And I thought, oh, what, it, 
what does she mean? <laughs> Did I have prior knowledge? What is prior knowledge? And why don't you want it? And why is it fake? And how does it relate to this trilogy? Um, prior knowledge is uh, everything that doesn't happen. Not everything that doesn't happen in life, but it, it is what does not happen in reality. In reality, you have surfaces. You, you see things and then you hear people when they speak. You know what it's like to be you. Um, you get your information uh, from a reading of, of the surface of life. And I guess I wanted to write uh, according to the same principles. Um, traditional idea of narrative um, is that it has a memory and it has I mean at its worst in the contemporary novel that it has access to other people's memories and other people's consciousnesses um, and that I suppose if you go even further back to the sort of Victorian um, mode of fiction writing prior knowledge is God, it's omniscience, it's a, a, a moral um, view of life that is more important than characters. So in the end, characters are good and bad, and the story is, uh, it exists to, to prove <laughs> the things that are already known. Um, I mean, what I'm trying to do in these books is use other people, things that people actually... And when I say Paris, I know that everybody, inside everyone's head, a whole city appears. Um, and it, I suppose the theory of prior knowledge is that you pretend that you don't know that Paris exists and that you have to re-describe it to somebody else. And that is the aim of the book. One, it, I mean, Paris yeah. does not figure here, but if no. Paris did, it would be a Paris that we didn't know existed? Uh, or that we it, had it no... Would, Prior no, I, it would be something I would assume you would know. Um, right. Okay. So, the, Virginia Woolf's point that novels don't need to be long anymore because you don't need to explain the history of lace making, you know, all over <laughs> again. It's, it's kind of that idea. Um, tell me about Faye. Faye is the narrator of the three books in the trilogy. And... Um, She's only named once in each book. She is somebody we know very little about. Um, but she is someone who constantly meets people in outline. Um, she goes to Athens, and she, during this journey, she meets people, and she might ask them a question or might say something, and then then they talk, so their stories are filtered through her. How did the idea of reinventing or turning around the novel in that way, where we don't find out about Faye, about the main character, so to say, but about the others? Hmm. It's a novel about the others. Well, in the, when and the book first came out, um, because I truly, when I wrote Outline, when I finished it, I did have a moment where I thought, no one is ever going to read this. It, it is totally impossible to read. And uh, Why did you think that? Because I did see that it... it uh, 
Okay, I worried it would feel a bit like getting on a train that you think is going to stop at all the suburban stations and finding out it's not stopping anywhere and it's going all the way <laughs> to <laughs> Vladivostok and you can't get off. Um, so, so I worried about a feeling of claustrophobia, I suppose. And in, indeed, in all the reviews, it, it didn't say that, actually. Uh, but it, most of them said... It is only on page, I think it is 253 or something, I can't remember. It's only on page 253 that we learn the name of the narrator. And at that point, it is such a shock. It's like something jumping out of a cupboard and sort of waving its hands at you. Because you've almost, well, it doesn't say this, but I, I deduced from that observation that everybody made, um, that you've almost forgotten the idea of a narrator. Um, and that seemed to me to be as close to a success um, as I could get. Because where I began was um, really in, to begin with, doubt and in the end, actual, actual disgust when I really thought about it um, at how humans are um, turned into material objects and almost pornographic objects in even the most harmless piece of fiction. That What do you mean by that? Well, even the... I mean, I'm thinking this particularly about, about the woman character and you expect to know about her body and to know what she looks like and, and to know to have intimate access. Um, and I suppose I'd, you know, for a while, I mean, I've been writing a long time and I think there probably was a period where I thought, what's wrong with me? You know, because I don't, I, I've never been someone who's, who's particularly done that in, in um, fiction. But I always felt I ought to. <laughs> it's somewhere or another, and I just couldn't. Uh, and this time, that you I ought to give access to the woman. Yeah, body, yeah, for and, and be yeah. a more physical writer, for instance, write about sex, write, write about you know um, things that other people seemed to do more easily. Um, so it felt like a very satisfying, although slightly terrifying act of assertion um, to not only not do that, but totally remove the, the physical body of um, not only the narrator, but sort of more or less the other characters. And so, you know, there is a point in the novel where someone tries to kiss her. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, there's also a point in the next novel where <laughs> someone tries to kiss her. Mm -hmm. And... and um, I, I suppose part of what I wanted to do was return, you know, return to, to what is actually um, I suppose important or, or um, shocking about that, even that simple thing of somebody approaching you physically and touching you. Um, I, I wanted to get right back to to that basic, um, I suppose, crossing of a boundary. Um, so, so that's a very the edge of what you're asking. Um, but yeah, it began with that, and then th there were so many artistic reasons to um, really negate 
the narrative centre of the novel that I wanted to write. Not negated exactly, but... but um, what do you mean by negating the, the narrative centre? What does that mean? Because it seemed to me that all the problems in contemporary that there are in contemporary narrative come from that um, space, from the place where the, the narrative, the narrator, the thing that used to be God in a George Eliot novel is God and omniscience. Um, it seemed to me that, that a big problem of fiction was right there and that if you wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was write about womanhood um, without inviting judgment um, without writing a story of victimization, um, without writing a story in which you had to sell and, and defend you know, issues um, and, and, and protect them and possibly not tell the truth about them in the process, um, that, that the only way to do that was uh, to, to totally conceal um, where this... <laughs> novel was coming from. Hmm. Um, the woman, no, the uh, Faye, or who we don't know, the narrator, sits next to, right in the very beginning, um, the, a man on the airplane. Um, uh, and he is, he is actually the man who tries to kiss her much later in the, in the book. Um, Actually, two of your novels, as a kudos, uh, not published yet, also starts in an airplane. Uh, there's so many. There's such attention to to space and you know confined spaces, big spaces, and just space and place uh, that play a, a large role in all the three books. Um, why this attention to space and place? And, and it's never home. No. It's never home. It's always, even in transit, and uh, not yet out in Norway, I mean, Faye has a, a kind of home, but it's being completely refurbished, and there are workers there, and there are some very menacing, mean, angry neighbors, and it just feels uh, not home-like. It feels very much of a place of transit. Mm. Um, but this attention to place, you know, foreign cities or cities, streets, hotels, cafes, other people's houses, airplanes, boats, cars. Um, and you talked about the physicality or of the body, but there are a lot of the other characters are very physical because they somehow have to fit into the space mm. that they are put in. So I suppose what I was looking for were... Um, Places where uh, there you you get no reflection. Um, I mean, a, a one of the biggest themes in the book is um, identity and mm. what it is and where it comes from and whether you can lose it. Um, and in fact, most of Kudos, probably eighty percent of it, is written. Uh, it, in the voices of people speaking English as a second language, um, and I think it takes place I, in Berlin at a writer. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and I think I will probably never write in native <laughs> English ever again for um, these same 
reasons that that uh, what I've found liberating in writing these books and what I've discovered through writing them is that when I talk in my own voice, uh, in my own language, uh, things are, are apparent about me that um, that I don't realize. You know, my social class, um, my age, possibly my sex, possibly my uh, you know things that have uh, formed me. Um, I, what I loved about writing this was, in the end, arriving at a version of English that... that uh, I mean, I heard that, that um, your theatre here, um, I, this concept of old Norwegian and, mm. and sort of a, a, a language from the past that... And, and we have this in England, too, of, of, mm. of sort of dialects and mm. people trying to revive those things. And I'm, I'm so anti <laughs> that whole idea. And for me personally, the idea of a completely cleansed international English that has no nuances of, That's what you of where you've come from or who you are. or Well, in, as I say, I found it as a medium it's so liberating. Um, it's so, I, and I guess the, the question about place is the same thing. It's saying, you know, I don't want to write about anywhere where, where my assumptions about what it is um, will create a, 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 some kind of disconnect between me and you know, the reader or a reader. Um. I want you to um, read um, from the beginning. Uh, we, um, I want to come back to what you were saying, but I want to hear a little bit of the, the voice. And we're here at the... So this is on the plane. On the plane, but I'm not <laughs> taking off yet. Yes. The man. Um. On the tarmac at Heathrow, the plane full of people waited silently to be taken into the air. The air hostess stood in the aisle and mimed with her props as the recording played. We were strapped into our seats, a field of strangers, in a silence like the silence of a congregation while the liturgy is read. She showed us the life jacket with its little pipe, the emergency exits, the oxygen mask dangling from a length of clear tubing. She led us through the possibility of death and disaster, as the priest leads the congregation through the details of purgatory and hell. And no one jumped up to escape while there was still time. Instead, we listened, or half-listened, thinking about other things, as though some special hardness had been bestowed on us by this coupling of formality with doom. When the recorded voice came to the part about the oxygen masks, the hush remained unbroken. No one protested or spoke up to disagree with this commandment that one should take care of others only after taking care of oneself. Yet I wasn't sure it was altogether true. On one side of me sat a swarthy boy with lolling knees whose fat thumbs sped around the screen of a gaming console. On the other side was a small man in a pale linen suit, richly tanned with a silver plume of hair. Outside, the turgid summer afternoon lay stalled over the runway, Little airport vehicles raced unconstrained across the flat distances, skating and turning and circling like toys. And further away still was the silver thread of the motorway that ran and glinted like a brook bounded by the monotonous fields. The plane began to move, trundling forward, so that the vista appeared to unfreeze into motion, flowing past the windows first slowly and then faster, until there was the feeling of effortful, half-hesitant lifting as it detached itself from the earth 
There was a moment in which, in which it seemed impossible that this could happen, but then it did. Thank you. Um, thank you. Your voice changes slightly when you read from when you talk. That's my, sure that's my upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> Speak up. Okay. <laughs> um, in that passage you just read, there's this sentence that I, I wrote down. You say, as though some special hardness had been bestowed upon us by this coupling of formality and doom. And it, it was almost as if I, or I wondered a little bit, because this book, uh, or the books, um, all three of them have some sense of coupling of formality and doom. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting... Um, that's an interesting point you've made. Actually, I wouldn't. I didn't see that that was so much in that line, but it is absolutely in that line. Um, I mean, part of what is happening in these books is—is is it saying what what does life look like when you choose not to seek safety in? And, and I, you know, the last thing I'm interested in doing ever in writing is is going after extremity of any kind. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's not an extreme predicament that I'm talking about um, when I talk about not being safe or being in danger. Or, but it's essentially not cleaving to um, relationships or, or places um, in order to, to remain safe. Um, and I guess that that leaves... You know, if that's not in the picture, that does leave either formality <laughs> or doom. Um, and and with, with you or, you know, this person um, in the middle of it. It seems that in everything you're saying, and certainly everything that I'm in the reading uh, in the text, there is this sort of wanting to go back to, it's almost... Beckett, there's, it's, to go back to you know, some, a kind of silence, or the silence after the catastrophe, not the silence before the storm, but the silence after the storm. And there's, it seems to me that all of these fragments of dialogues or monologues, because this is, it, it's really what it is, I mean, it's, it's just monologue after monologue, uh, sort of stitched together or shard, you know, like broken mirror with shards, and then there's sort of glued together in a beautiful, strange way. But it seems that, that very many of, of the monologues spring out of some kind of shock or silence or um, catastrophe of some kind. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, the thing that um, I hoped... Uh, might be part of the, the the sort of reading experience, if one can call it that, of of this book was the feeling that um, which started out, I guess, as economy of me trying to be very, very economical. Um, but the feeling that, that what do you mean? So what do you mean by you tried to be very economical with? I didn't want form? anything in there that didn't have to be in there. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, at the end of the book, there's a character who talks about this 
problem that she has. She's a writer, and then she calls it summing up. That, that the second she thinks about writing a book in which, I don't know, a couple are, are riven apart by his jealousy at her, you know, this, that, and the other, that she just, the word jealousy pops into her head and she can't write the book. She thinks that's it. I, I just say jealousy and you, she you might... She summed it up. Yeah, you might as well so have she can't the book. Write it. And, and um, so this is beginning to kind of destroy it's, the point of lived experience, of living things in time, um, that actually one can become so familiar with the idea of, of something having happened. Uh, so this is really the... the I suppose the the dead end point of telling any story um, th that you know what is a, a story but something told in time and and uh, it um, well in fact my <laughs> my husband um, made a point uh, we arrived at Copenhagen airport um, a couple of days ago and we as we got out of the plane we walked along through the airport past the the departures gate where the people were sitting, waiting to get on our plane and go back, having taken the flight, presumably, whenever they did, a few days before that we were now on. And there they were through the glass. And I said to her, we might as well just go and like, sit, go and get in those chairs. You know, <laughs> and, and just kind of have a download of our time in Copenhagen. You know. but, um, and he said, that's a very depressing attitude experience. Um, but but you know, what I wanted to get from this idea of people talking, I mean, it's partly... the the sort of, um, I suppose, the, the, the deepest reference of, in Outline is to the Odyssey and to um, that is where the trouble started, the sort of foundational <laughs> narrative and, and that being people telling things afterwards. Um, mm. so, so you tell what, what happened to you. And, I mean, that is, a, I suppose, a familiar structure to us in therapy, psychotherapy. That's what you mm. do. You... you recover from your trauma by telling afterwards what happened to you mm. um and i guess i wanted to to use that as a as a a very economic model um sort of a summing up um mm. that at the same time i mean the question is you know when you hear these stories okay partly you you understand that an entire life has been lived to to produce this story and yet you know too that that uh the teller of the tale <laughs> is um inherent has an innate grasp of literary form and and, and so is shaping a, mm -hmm. what what they're telling and that all of these things are uh as the book goes on more and more, you, I hope, I think, get this feeling that, that all of these stories are being drawn out by the, the act of listening and, and, and being tailored to the person they're being told to. So, so what is the um, reality? You know, what is reality in that, in that um, context? Um, well, they're being tailored to the person they're being told to, but also it's the person... But it's also being filtered through the person. Yeah, I mean, she's the narrator. Yeah, she's listening I mean, to because that it, because it has something because, to do with her. Because um, I'm, I, you said in an interview, and and I wanted to ask you about that. You said that that work uh, with these books, and I presume your earlier works as well. Um, you can see that you say that form is ninety percent 
everything is form. Um, I was intrigued by that. Uh, and I agree with you, but I want to hear you say why. Why is everything form? And, and explain also what, what form is, because it can seem abstract, but it's something, oh, I know, yeah. for you, that it's very, very concrete. For a writer, yeah. it's, you know... Well, I think for it's any human, it's how we live. I mean, this is a form. An interview is a form. Um, how an audience behaves is a form. Um, if someone breaks the form, it's, it's usually really obvious. And even a small child knows, uh, you know, how to behave in certain situations. Um, and... and I guess, um, though, I was reading a very funny John Cheever story yesterday where um, it was <laughs> sort of quite a good example of this where a couple invite another couple around for dinner and they, they don't really know each other. These people have just moved in next door and so then the neighbours invite them around and, and, uh, and they have a drink and they have dinner and it's all going incredibly well and the narrator is thinking, how great, these fantastic people have moved in next door and we just get on so well and it's, you know, isn't our neighbourhood brilliant and, you know, because part of the story is he's begun by saying we live in this really lovely place and oh these new people have moved in next door so it's a bit anyway at the end right at the end of the evening the the man who's been invited round suddenly sort of turns around and says god you're all so boring aren't you he says <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then sort of stands on Rich. the table and does this sort of funny dance and takes off his clothes and 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 this is it's and the wife says form. oh god he does this everywhere we go we move to a new place and you know he does the thing um <laughs> so <laughs> and that's a kind of um good example i guess of, of breaking for uh, yeah and how form <laughs> is is very very important to us and part of what i'm saying in these books is that it is um it is a, a an innate human attribute to understand and it's something that we are in we are very imperiled by at, at the same time um it's it's what also confines us um, the sense of our own story, which possibly we've been told, um, you know, very forcefully in early life, or, or um, you know, how I think some people, I would count myself as one of them, um, would find it so difficult to break out of. They're, you know, the form of themselves because they've been told so forcefully that this is how it is and this is who they are. Um, and that is an amazing lack of freedom. Um, so it is imprisonment too. Um, it seems that these books and the way, what I'm hearing you saying, I mean, there's a constant you know, navigating between discipline and emotion or uh, form and as a keeping in form uh, in the architecture and then breaking out of it. Um, I guess, I mean, you wrote three memoirs, very strong memoirs, about one about motherhood, one about a vacation, one about a trip, and one about uh, divorce. And then, then you write these books, um, this trilogy, which seems, I mean, had you been able to write these, this trilogy without having written 
these very personal memoirs before? Uh, I think yes. Had you, except could you have skipped the the sort of very telling, yeah, personal stories? Question. I mean, part of what happened when I wrote those memoirs is that everyone went completely mad and jumped up and down and how did they go uh, treated completely mad as a, as a sort of Who public went enemy mad um, and how and why my country men and women um, <laughs> they went mad yes and, yes uh, perhaps we're all going to you know someone will pull the brexit plug and the whole lot of them will sink into the sea and uh, <laughs> i don't know that i'll be sorry um so that was an example of uh, a good example of a form because um so I wrote a, a supposedly honest, uh, it's not my favourite word, um, account of uh, motherhood um, 15 years ago. And yes, it, it caused um, great outcry. Uh, and I got many letters from women um, for a long, long period afterwards saying, thank you for your book, and it described exactly what I feel. And now I know that I can never say what I feel because I've seen how people have responded to your book and I understand that they would also respond to me in the same way if I ever said what I feel. If you were to sum up the anger or sum up the reaction and your reaction to that, if we, how... Personally, for me. Well, yeah, well, what, was, what was it that made these women write to you that now I... You wrote what I felt, but I can't say it because I saw what happened to you. So yeah. what, what was... Well, that's very sensible. <laughs> yeah, but what, I mean, what was the... Oh, if well, you were to sum up the... What happened to you that... Fear. Fear. Yeah. I think... Um, and I, I'm always trying to find that fear in myself because I do want to understand it. And so I think, okay, what is, is it that I'm so dependent on and so terrified to admit that I'm dependent on it and so in need of no one ever seeing the truth of what I really feel about it, that I would actually attack someone um, for saying the thing that I myself feel. Um, and, you know, I'm sure if I... I can't think about it now, but if I, you know, thought about it enough, I would, I would find something. Um, but, but it's... it's I suppose how people behave when they feel there is a serious emergency going on in, in the sense of, of an attack on the consensus um, and a feeling that... I mean, some, one review of that book, my perfectly humble, small book about motherhood, the, the woman reviewer said, if everyone read this book, the propagation of the human race would cease, it says. I think that's a little overstating the, the, the problem here. Um, but, um, so I think it's that. Uh, and, I mean, having gone through that and seen that, okay, there is a... a and this is very much to do with, with womanhood. And I know it... it uh, it also happens to men that, that, that they can be victimised um, for, for saying certain things. Um, and I'm sure there's actually many things in masculinity that I haven't even thought about that are taboo, that you're not allowed to say. Um, and you know, my sort of job is thinking about women. And, and um, So I guess the exercise of 
writing these things and, and finding out, yes, that, that is the case, that, that when you create an entity in space, and it's a woman, and it, it uh, claims to feel certain things, at the same time you're creating a, a target, um, you're creating something people can throw rocks at. And Did the same thing happen um, after your book about called aftermath yeah way uh, worse but it was, it was yeah even way worse. worse yeah worse than the month so well and i, I was very surprised was by that because i thought well actually you know at least with motherhood you can you can get it that people right. are desperate to but they say were even that this is the most wonderful thing so, that ever happened to me but no one is going to say that about divorce all right so and the reaction I mean, to <laughs> <laughs> but the reaction to the aftermath was even worse yes and was also the fear as was was there fear well, again that was a slightly different thing that that um I guess that I see that in life too, which is um, it's the fear is of contamination. I think fear is contamination is of contamination. So, so I think that when and something I write about in um, mm. Kudos, which you've read and nobody else mm. has, um, the the couple that spend all their time with another couple and then that couple get divorced, mm. and and it becomes very difficult. Mm. You know, they get in the end fed up with the half of the couple that. Mm they've remained in, in a relationship with and they don't want that person around anymore. So that's because, the fear of contamination. Yeah, well, because I suppose it's you the fear that the divorced person is saying the thing that, that if you said it, you'd have to accept that your marriage was over and this person has accepted that their marriage is over and maybe it is the, you know, the thing that you will never allow to happen um, in your own life. So, I mean, these things are sort of... I mean, yes, honesty, I guess, is, is the word. Um, uh, since you... You mentioned fear. I, I read another, well, that might have been an interview I heard too, where you said about the trilogy, and this I ask you because you mentioned fear. You said that the trilogy was written completely without dread, and it should be a book completely void of danger. And I was so intrigued by that statement because to me there was there was there was danger and uh, doom under the elegance under the formality and but you but you insisted on this several times no there I mean there is no dread in these pages um, and but what did you mean by that I mean or suspense so, so you meant something other than fear you meant suspense yeah. Meaning plot, Which, suspense, or... And I think dread probably is, because you're not... You know, if you're reading a novel and, and it's being withheld... You know, information is being withheld from you in order for you to feel suspense so that you will presumably keep mm -hmm. turning the pages okay. in order to find out, you know, what this thing is. And, and I think that there is... I think dread probably is the right word because you're not frightened of not finding out what happens in a book obviously but okay. but i think one is kept at a low level of of um i suppose exposure or vulnerability to what the writer could do to you at any minute they could kill off a character they could make something really frightening happen you know and i mean it's sort of when you go to the cinema that that's mm -hmm. the condition that you're in um you, you've opened yourself to this uh, narrative 
and put yourself at its mercy. And um, I didn't want that feeling um, in my book. I, I think that I want to ask you to read. Um, let me see what page we wrote it down. Uh, because it's uh, where, yes, page 74. Thank you. <laughs> so she's now um, gone out on a boat trip with the guy she sat next to on the plane. And they're in Greece. Who tries to kiss her? He's a Greek man, <laughs> a bit older than her. He offered me a Coke from the cold box he kept on deck and then proffered a box of tissues from which he took a large handful himself. He blew his nose lengthily and thoroughly while both of us watched the family on the neighbouring boat. There were two little boys and a girl playing there, shrieking as they leapt off the side and then clambering one after another back up the ladder, their bodies glittering with water. A woman in a sun hat sat on deck reading a book and beside her in the shade of the canopy was a baby's pram. A man in long shorts and sunglasses paced up and down the deck, speaking into his phone. I said that I found appearances more bewildering and tormenting now than at any previous point in my life. It was as if I had lost some special capacity to filter my own perceptions, one that I had only become aware of once it was no longer there, like a missing pane of glass in a window that allows the wind and rain to come rushing through unchecked. In much the same way, I felt exposed to what I saw, dis discomforted by it. I thought often of the chapter in Wuthering Heights where Heathcliff and Cathy stare from the dark garden through the windows of the Linton's drawing room and watch the brightly lit family scene inside. What is fatal in that vision is its subjectivity. Looking through the window, the two of them see different things. Heathcliff, what he fears and hates, and Cathy, what she desires and feels deprived of but neither of them can see things as they really are. And likewise, I was beginning to see my own fears and desires manifested outside myself, was beginning to see in other people's lives a commentary on my own. When I looked at the family on the boat, I saw a vision of what I no longer had. I saw something, in other words, that wasn't there. Those people were living in their moment, and though I could see it, I could no more return to that moment than I could walk across the water that separated us. And of those two ways of living, living in the moment and living outside it, which was the more real? Mm, thank you. Um, we seem to have found lots of bits where we keep talking about monologues and there aren't any. <laughs> anyway, the rest <laughs> of the book is, <laughs> has lots of monologues. Um, <laughs> I read an essay that you wrote um, in Granta magazine, and I'm wondering if you wrote it just before before you started writing the trilogy or why you were writing, maybe the first book came out a few several Is it years? Coventry? Yes, it's Coventry. Can you tell us what Coventry is and what being sent to Coventry <laughs> is? So, I was uh, so Coventry is a town in the Midlands of England. Um, and it's... And I think I say in the essay that I don't know why no. Uh, Coventry, and I could Google it very easily and find out, and I you have not done that. Um, not. So there's a phrase, being but sent to Coventry, which means... As a child, um, you were afraid. Yeah. To uh, it means people don't... They decide uh, not to speak to you. So you are um, imprisoned in silence 
uh, and people pretend that you're not there. Um, and it's something children do quite often to each other. And also parents, because you write about the parents yes, who yes, did this to, to me, you yeah. as a child. Um, and you, you say, sometimes it takes me a while to notice that my parents have sent me to Coventry. It's not unlike when a central heating boiler breaks down, there's no explosion, no dramatic sight or sound, merely a growing feeling of discomfort that comes from the gradual drop in temperature and that one might be surprisingly slow depending on one's instinct for habituation to attribute to an actual cause. Um, like coldness, the silence advances, making itself known not by presence but by absence. Um, and that made me think about the trilogy, mm. you know. The, so the I science, write, and, 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 but then you write something that I was, I put four, <laughs> uh, what do you call them? Um, exclamation marks in the margin. And you say something, something that happens much later in, late, later in life, not as a child. But this time, I start to feel safer in Co Coventry, safer in the silence. After all, Coventry is a place where the worst has already happened. And I was wondering, it, it almost felt like a poetic or as a, as a sort of <laughs> a, an introduction or a word, uh, Virgil taking me into the trilogy again. That, you know, that, that did you have to go to Coventry <laughs> to write <laughs> well, this trilogy? I, or did, I is, think I is, wrote that essay after... Uh, yeah, I definitely wrote it after I wrote Outline and possibly okay. after I wrote Transit but you were in that as well. But, but I think, yes. I, is I, there a Coventry link? Um, this place of... That I you think, feared, but... Yeah, well, so I think what I'm trying to say in that essay is that it... Um, and, and it does actually relate to your earlier point about dread and um, that perhaps silence... Uh, is another of those dreads. Um, and I think that the, the... I mean, I've sort of written elsewhere about, you know, my mother and, and um, anyone's mother, I guess, possibly. Um, not yours. <laughs> um, but one's mother who, you know, in her lack of sort of power in the household... Tells the story of the of life. Tells the story of the family. Um, that that is part of the the um, female job is to keep talking. And um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the idea of, of and and of male of silence being quite male. Um, mm. So I guess part of what silence means for me in this context is um, deciding not to please people or feeling that I don't have to please people. Um, that's what it means to me and that's what I've always seen in, in I suppose, the male prerogative to silence um, is a, a lack of servitude. Um, so, yeah, and, yeah, a punishment. Um, other people punishing you by... by being silent and not talking to you. So the idea of, of owning it and using it yourself is quite appealing. <laughs> Many of the stories, the monologues, the, the fragments, 
the shards in all of the three books uh, are about relationships, love, divorce, um, and also children. Children is a big part of of the book, and it, it, it comes stronger and stronger throughout the trilogy. That at one point I was really thinking that this, these are books about the um, about children in jeopardy, about children in danger. Yep, that is that is I guess the the true. Well, it's about cruelty, um, and that is the. If at the one end of what I'm doing is the the woman and her story and her care and her victimization and her you know passivity or not her enslavement or not her inferiority or not um, the at the other end are the children that she produces and um it's true that the where I go in the end in with this book is is um, towards an idea that that uh, is very appealing to me and very frightening to me as well that um, suffering brings honor um, and that the honor in this case is for the woman who smashes up security and and conventional happiness for her children in order to deliver them closer to what she believes to be the truth uh, for their own sake and the amazing feeling of peril that 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 engenders um, how much and the the passage I just read about looking in through the window, you know, you, you condemn yourself to being that um, by, by doing what, you know, I, I myself did what I describe in the book. Uh, you, you look in, you know, you're, you are out on the streets and you're looking in at other people's intact family happiness. Um, so, so, and yet there's, I mean, part of why I, I wanted to abandon narrative in the way that I did was because I, th I think it, it is at the heart of that vision, <laughs> that vision of life that I, in the end, didn't believe in, and I don't believe in it. And, um, and really, the, the, I suppose the project of this book is to find the alternative um, to it. And, you know, Aftermath was, I guess, the beginning of that mm. in saying, well, actually, what this really looks like is... Um, exile and kind Aftermath, of death. Aftermath, your book yeah. about divorce. Yes. Yeah, so you, you try and get get away from this thing. You try and live in some other way uh, as a woman, as a mother, and, you know, everyone's going to rip you to pieces and, and um, you'll sort of freeze out in the cold. Uh, so the idea that, that actually some special... <laughs> uh, Honor, as I say, yep. um, could could come from this. Um, can, can you explain that? You said suffering or honor through suffering. So whose honor, whose suffering? Well, I think the, the suffering of the the 
people involved who are mainly right. the children. And what happens at the end of Kudos, one of the last things that happens, I mean, throughout these books, her, she has two sons, mm. this woman, and they... They keep calling her. They call her. And say, I'm lost, or yeah. where's so, my... Yeah. So you never see her with them, but, but they do communicate with her. And usually it's because something awful is happening to them. So, and she's not there. So that's part of the... That's stating very clearly what the problem is. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, I suppose, in, in a sense, is offering... Which, which actually I've really tried not to do anywhere else in these books, but it's offering something up for general disapproval, which is here's a mother who's not with her children. Um, but luckily, <laughs> no one seems to have sort of noticed that quite well. They're a little bit older. So, uh, And at the end, this, the sort of climax of these many phone calls and texts mm. that have happened throughout the three books is that on, I think, the third to last page, her son calls her from England and says... Listen, don't, you know, it's okay, but I think, I, you know, I've basically set fire to an apartment block <laughs> and, um, and tells th this story in which, in fact, he um, has done the right thing. He has done something... Um, well, not setting the fire, but he's handled Well, but he, the situation. fire wasn't his fault. No, and, in and, fact, and he's he, handled yeah, the situation. And yes. he shows how adults have construed his actions... Yes. And, and, and are blaming him for it and threatening to call the police and he's become very frightened because he and he says I almost wish the police would come because then you know right. I could just tell them the truth and and so what the honor might be mm. is a, is I suppose the only thing that I suggest by that is a closer relationship to truth and to ideas of right and wrong and justice and um you know that out of the subjectivity of of the family story um the chance to live as a free individual you know that's what she's i suppose trying to give her children is freedom um from that conferred you know from that part in in the family story and everything that goes along with it how do you feel about I mean, you are yourself a mother and and a writer, but how do you feel about the the very paradoxical and 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 difficult idea of of honor through suffering and even your children, uh, even one's children's suffering? Is that not? Is that? I mean, are you saying that that is, in a way, the um, the moral of the story? I mean, were you yeah. going that far to say? Because these But, are very moral tales. I yeah. mean, I read, I read the whole trilogy as a, as a morality tale, I do. But are you saying that that's... I if think you that's were to the, sum the up... the kernel of it, yeah. Hmm? And, and that I mean, partly, but, okay, but, for suffering, you could substitute experience. Um, okay. And I think what... You know, all sorts of things that are said about... Um, This, you know, fiction writing in our time and um, the element of autobiography in it and um, that is apparently, you know, possibly a, a public menace. Um, well, uh, in Norway, where, yeah, we have a debate But, uh, you know, everywhere that, it's, it's <laughs> true and it's misunderstood and it's seen as 
narcissism and that you think you're so important and you write about yourself. And, and, but actually, all it's trying to do is put lived experience back at the heart of creative representation and at the heart of art, which is where it has always been uh, until a vein of fantasy has you know, swamped our culture, which maybe comes from cinema, I don't, I don't know. But, um, you know, that, 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 those values are, are um, very much sort of bent out of shape. And, um, you know, this, this idea, you know, part of what I want to do in these books is, is sort of reconstruct the idea of the writer, you know, not as a person who's doing precisely what I'm doing right now and sitting on stage and pontificating, um, but as simply a person who lives and lives to tell the tale. And uh, to me, well, however I live, and, you know, and I'm, how I live is not remotely important, but, but the, the relationship of that living to the tale that I tell is is essential, um, and every single sort of story or narrative or character in this book is, I suppose, the honour that that they get is the chance to um, shape and and express and communicate their experience that that in in this um, coherent way. Um, I mean, you know, one of the funny things in the book, and it's only funny at the moment because the copy editor has such a sort of... <laughs> and in Kudos, it's even worse. But, but the, it's very important that some of the things people say are in quotation marks, mm. and quite a lot of the things they say aren't in quotation marks because, for me, there's such a, an absolutely perfect <coughs> gradation between speaking... And then the speaking that is actually writing, mm. uh, because no one, in fact, writes except yes. the narrator who never says anything. Mm. She's the only writer, and you're reading her book. Mm. You're reading the thing that she's written, mm. and you know those things are so perfectly connected to each other. Um, yeah. I have to ask you one last question, and because I did. Be, I, when you read all three books, they all see, they, they seem as one. I mean, they're one work. And the last book ends on a on a on a very dark, very angry, aggressive, um, vast. Uh, the narrator, we don't have to say what happens, but just the narrator is in a very vast place and something very um, confined or something very intimate and horrible happens. So it's, it's this, this, again, this meeting between something vast and, and something very confined and it's very angry and it's very aggressive. Um, did you always know that you would, that this, that the doom that would toll uh, also at the very last page? Yeah. So I, I did uh, understand that in the end I would have to say something about uh, men and their role in all of this. And... Um, 
almost, <laughs> I sort of thought, is there some way that I can do this where I don't have to do that? But I did have to do it. Um, Roll in all of what? Uh, female suffering and uh, not just in family life, in sex, in parenthood, in... Um, I mean, what happens... I don't see what happens at the end as aggressive, particularly. I see it as... Um, I suppose pagan in its um, lack of sentimentality. Uh, it is merely an animal, um, a moment of anim animalism, as it were, um, that in which she survives. She's in a different element. It's just two entities confronting each other. Mm. And uh, in perfect equanimity sort of um, so <laughs> uh, which was you know I, I feel there is a balance in the end I don't feel mm. that I'm um, I mean the second half of Kudos becomes more and more concerned with actual instances of, of cruelty to women mm. I guess and um, but in the end I think there is a, a, a sort of equilibrium um, that they're just mm. The male and the female, are, you know, they are standing on different elements and uh, they live in different elements and yet they are completely interconnected and interdependent um, and one inflicts and the other receives and that's, you know, where I got to. Okay. Call it angry or dark, or, but I sort of felt it was, you know, not that bad. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is uh, it is outline is out in Norwegian, and it is a wonderful translation. I was so curious how this translator would you know it's it's a beautiful translation, and uh, congratulations and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>